The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The outbreak of virulent Newcastle disease in poultry flocks in Southern California is growing. We have the details. 1.4 million Californians have no access to broadband internet at any speed, and that includes many farm areas of California. We find out why high-speed internet access is vital to the success of farming in the Golden State in the 21st century. Farmers in northeastern California are nervous there's been no water allocations issued for 2018 for growers in the Klamath River Basin. We'll tell you why. All that, crop reports, and an update on the reconstruction of the Oroville Dam spillways on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. We reported last week about the outbreak of virulent Newcastle disease among backyard chickens in Southern California, specifically in Los Angeles County. Now that disease is expanding. Virulent Newcastle disease has now been confirmed in a number of flocks of backyard birds in San Bernardino County. This outbreak harkens back to the outbreak of Newcastle disease in 2002-2003, which was also confirmed in backyard poultry in Southern California. That spread to commercial poultry operations in California, as well as backyard poultry in Arizona, Nevada, and Texas. The outbreak from discovery to eradication lasted 11 months. The outbreak response led to the depopulation of over 3 million birds at a cost of $161 million. Trade restrictions resulting from the disease had negative impacts on California as well as other U.S. poultry and egg producers back in 2002-2003. We should point out that virulent Newcastle disease is not a food safety concern. No human cases of Newcastle disease have ever occurred from eating poultry products. Properly cooked poultry products are safe to eat. Symptoms of Newcastle disease among your flock are limited usually to conjunctivitis or influenza-like symptoms. Now that we're in fair season, exhibition chicken owners, 4-H'ers, FFA'ers should be practicing good biosecurity. That could include simple steps such as washing hands and scrubbing boots before and after entering a poultry area, cleaning and disinfecting tire and equipment before moving them off the property, perhaps isolating any birds returning from shows for 30 days before placing them with the rest of the flock. UC Certified Poultry Health Inspector Cherie Sintas-Glover offers three words to remember when protecting your exhibition chicken flock from virulent Newcastle disease. Three simple rules. They should be able to look, report, and protect. Look means being able to identify what's normal behavior for a chicken, um, to be able to notice if they're not feeling well, if they might have contracted something, if they're behaving differently. So if you're able to look and observe you're able to notice those kinds of symptoms or signs more quickly. The next thing is to report. If you have a bird that's ill or demonstrating any of the signs and symptoms that we talked about earlier, report your bird right away. There's a sick bird help um, line that you can contact or a hotline. You can also utilize some of the uh, CDFA labs. We have one in Turlock and one in UC Davis that are closest to us, and they actually specialize in avian science. And they'll actually perform a necropsy on your bird to figure out what's going on. But reporting um, is extremely important because that's what's going to help prevent the continued spread of a disease. Um, And then also protect. Follow those good biosecurity rules. That means, you know, restricting visitors, 
you know, isolate your flock to a certain degree, but, you know, don't have a lot of access if you don't need to, you know, from other chicken owners. Um, you know, avoid those contacts with wild birds or with rodents. Even insects can, can uh, be vectors for disease. Make sure the feed is clean. And then also the most basic thing of all is washing your hands. Wash your hands when you go from one chicken yard to the next. If you follow these rules, it'll at least help you um, help, you know, protect your flock from, from things that could be very dangerous. That California Sick Bird hotline number, 866-922-BIRD, 866-922-2473. Additional information about virulent Newcastle disease as well as biosecurity tips for backyard flocks can be found at the California Department of Food and Agriculture website, cdfa.ca.gov. Many in the ag sector are wondering why there is uncertainty with trade these days. What with calls to renegotiate some free trade agreements and issues revolving around tariffs that could impact U.S. ag export opportunities. After all, according to Al Johnson, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office Chief Agricultural Negotiator during the first term of the George W. Bush administration. We had good agreements for us. China's accession was a good ag agreement. NAFTA was a good ag agreement. Agreements with eight countries that we did free trade agreements with. The last time I checked, we had a trade surplus with every one of these countries. The WTO itself was a good ag agreement. Yet he adds, whether you're in manufacturing, technology, intellectual property, or other sectors, they were feeling abused by the same trading system that we were all benefiting from. They were losing investment, markets, jobs, intellectual property, etc. And they were blaming U.S. trade policies and U.S. agreements for this. As an explanation from the negotiator perspective, Johnson uses 3D chess, like that played in the original Star Trek TV series. And again, check. Checkmate. Your illogical approach to chess does have its advantages on occasion, Captain. I prefer to call it inspired. Each move had multidimensional impacts. One level would be what was going on inside the building, which was often the toughest negotiation. The next level would be inside the administration between the agencies. The next level would be bringing the Congress into the conversation. The next level would be the private sector. Next level was the public relations aspect of it. The next level would be finally to the person across the table, and that person had their own multidimensional challenges. So as a chief ag negotiator, Johnson's primary focus was on agriculture. And as an ag negotiator, I figured it was the other sector's job to defend themselves and fend for themselves. Yet in hindsight, he says previous agreements didn't have a broad sector element one doesn't usually hear with trade negotiations sustainability. Remember, we were winning TPA in CAFTA DR by one vote in the House, literally. Is that sustainable? Is there a compliance to the deal? Maybe we need to be thinking, are others getting what they were told? And are we telling a good story, not just for ag, but also for the whole economy and for other sectors? Are there realistic opportunities and transitions for people who are being affected by trade in these agreements? Are there real strategies to get our businesses and our workers in a changing global marketplace to somewhere that they can sustain themselves? I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Sacramento County pear orchards are slowly shrinking. Why is that? Well, according to Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels, there's more competition worldwide from other pear growers, so prices for California's pears are down. But beyond that, farm labor shortages are playing a big part in the decline. Uh, Yeah, labor is a huge problem, especially for pears, which require so much labor for harvest and and, uh, various practices through the year. And the, the cost is going up. The availability is going down. It just becomes really difficult to grow pears or will as time goes on. 
because of these labor problems. Still, Sacramento County's Bartlett pear production ranks in the top three local ag commodities here, right behind wine grapes and milk. May was hot, but summer isn't even officially here yet. June, July, and August are obviously the, the core summer months, and the average temperatures, even in a normal year, are considerably higher than what we see during May. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says it depends on whether the heat is slow and steady or comes in extremely hot spells. To this point, we have seen more of the steady warmth. So we've had a, a few hot days, but overall it's just been flat out warm day after day after day. And that's the best scenario, you know, just to have that steady warmth because that means your extreme temperatures are not high, but you just have consistent warmth. He says rainfall is essential. With the higher temperatures, you're increasing evaporation, you're increasing evapotranspiration. So crop moisture demands are higher and you're increasing your losses from the soil. So it does put you on kind of tenuous ground agriculturally if you sustain this near record to record setting warmth through the summer months. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. In Tulare, corn continues to grow. The hay was cut, dried, and baled. Winter wheat was cut for silage. Cotton was irrigated. Rice is growing well in the Sacramento Valley with rice plantings nearly complete. Grapes are developing well. Vineyard leaf removal is ongoing. Stone fruit orchards were irrigated and fertilized. New orchards were being planted. Early peaches and nectarines were harvested. Apricot and cherry harvest is ongoing. Some orchard floors were lined with reflective plastic to aid in fruit color. Valencia orange harvest continues. Some citrus trees were being planted as older trees were trimmed and skirted. Almonds are developing well. Almonds and walnuts are being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control continues. In the vegetable fields, brassicas, lettuce, spinach, and strawberries are being planted in Monterey. In Tulare, summer vegetables are being prepped for harvest. Melons germinated and are leafing out. Onions for dehydration were harvested in Imperial County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture is primarily rated as fair as warm weather accelerated drying, particularly on south and west-facing slopes. Some cattle were moved to higher elevation ranges. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at kste.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. California Water Fix, also known as the Delta Tunnels Project, has a well-organized opposition among Northern California and Delta area interests, including environmentalists, elected officials, landowners, and farmers. One area of great concern is the possible increase of ocean saltwater intrusion into the inland waterways. The executive director of Restore the Delta, Barbara berrigan Perea, explains why saltwater intrusion is a major concern if the Delta Tunnels project is given the go-ahead for construction. It's very simple. Um, the major freshwater source in the Delta is the Sacramento River. If you're diverting the Sacramento River into pipes, uh, large pipes, 9,000 cubic feet per second. Uh, sometimes the flow in the, in the Sacramento is less than that. And if you're diverting water into those pipes and it's bypassing the delta, you will have saltwater intrusion from the Bay Area and you will have the polluted salty water that comes down the San Joaquin River in greater concentrations in the delta without freshwater flows. So the impacts from the project will not just be on our surface water use of the Delta, it will intrude into our groundwater basins 
uh, making municipal water supplies contaminated, and then creating and, and creating a condition because you have fewer freshwater flows where pollutants, contaminants like selenium, boron, bromides, uh, salts, the methylization of mercury, toxic algal blooms would all increase and proliferate because you wouldn't have the freshwater flows moving through. At the first board meeting of the Delta Conveyance Design and Construction Joint Powers Authority held in mid-May in Sacramento, Sacramento County Supervisor Don Natoli added his concerns about the quality of life in the Delta during the construction process. He said that quiet rural farming areas will be transformed into gigantic construction zones more akin to an industrial complex than tranquil country settings. He told the board that impacts of these prolonged and intense activities, sometimes seven days a week, 24 hours a day for years, will undoubtedly affect the quality of life as well as the daily activities of those rural farming towns. It'll likely displace people from their homes, creating economic uncertainty for many small businesses, for farmers, as well as agritourism, and negatively affect the recreational fishing, boating, and ecotourism activities. Hi, I'm Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, and I need your help. What does he need your help with? If you received a 2017 Census of Agriculture, please return that questionnaire today. In other words, there's still time for your voice to be heard. The Ag Census forms were mailed out in December. Farmers and ranchers who want to mail back their completed paper questionnaires have until June 15th. But those who miss that date can still respond through July via the secure website. We at USDA and many others serving farmers and ranchers use the results to guide programs and funding. We've tried to make it easier and faster than ever to respond online, so please don't delay. The website address is agcensus.usda.gov. USDA is required by law to keep all information confidential and uses the data only for statistical purposes. The results are set to be made public in February 2019. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. For the best yield, rice should be planted in the Sacramento Valley by June the 1st. But after its planting, the waiting and the worrying begins. Kim Gallagher, a Calusa County rice grower, explains. We just finished planting our last field of rice last week. It was a little bit challenging this year because everything was later than we would have liked. Also, what happens this time of year is we have weather that we really cannot control. It can have north winds, we can have rain, we can have 100 degrees or 70 degrees. And so the first 30 days after planting are very crucial for rice. You can either make or break your season. So all we try and do is look at the weather report and respond to what Mother Nature throws at us. California's rice growers have planted about 440,000 acres this year. Back in February, USDA was forecasting a decline in U.S. agricultural exports for the 2018 fiscal year, putting the figure at $139.5 billion. Now we're a little bit above fiscal year 2017. USDA's chief economist, Rob Johansson, the new forecast, $142.5 billion, $3 billion above the previous forecast, $2 billion above last year. Reasons? We're seeing a little bit higher prices for some of our commodities. We did have a pretty good year for production, and so both of those are going to contribute to slightly higher export sales than we were predicting earlier. Now, a couple things have also helped that. We know that there's a pretty severe drought in uh, South America, particularly Argentina, for soybeans. So that's helped keep soybeans strong, even though we've seen some tail off in purchases from some of our major buyers like China. 
although they are coming back into the market recently. Nonetheless, USDA has lowered its U.S. soybean export forecast. The last year, we had about $23.97 billion in soybean exports, and we brought it down to 21.9 um, most recently. Now, that's not a real big change, and of course, that could adjust around one way or another. In fact, this entire latest export forecast is, as Johansson puts it, still a little bit uncertain because there is a lot of trade action going on right now. In other words, we haven't adjusted for uh, any proposed actions that may or may not happen. And just as the forecast was released the other day, President Trump took action, announcing he is imposing tariffs on imported steel and aluminum from several countries. And Johansson told us... A number of countries have indicated they're likely to retaliate. Right now, looking at the list of items that could potentially be retaliated against, about $3.4 billion in retaliation on U.S. agriculture. And that doesn't include Japan and Russia, who have also notified, as well as potential notification from Canada and Mexico. But in some cases, the tariffs will affect a good amount of what we export. For example, looking at China, EU, India, and Turkey and proposed retaliations, totaling about 60% of our inshelled almond exports. A lot of our whiskey exports also being affected. Walnuts pork as well, and then some of the fruit crops as well getting affected by potential retaliation. The key word there is potential, and right now, who knows what's going to happen, as Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue said the other day. Right now, certainty and predictability is not there on trade. That's for sure. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Agriculture is in the midst of a labor crisis that's only getting worse. Ag groups have been pushing Congress to fix the immigration system for the last two decades. Paul Schlegel, AFBF Managing Director of Public Policy and Economics, says it's past time for Congress to get the immigration system overhauled. He says one of the first things to decide is how to grant legal status to the workforce that's already in the country. We are now dependent to a large degree on hundreds of thousands of workers who will like to get legal status and we want to get them legal status. So stabilization of our existing workforce is a principal element that has to be addressed. And for the future, we have to have a guest worker program that embraces all of agriculture, that's affordable, that that's not bureaucratic, that gets employers, workers when they need them. The House of Representatives is due to consider an immigration bill sponsored by Republican Bob Goodlatte of Virginia. Schlegel says the bill improves the guest worker program, but Farm Bureau's also paying close attention to the other aspects of the bill. It's an affordable program. It moves it to the Department of Agriculture. It's less expensive for growers. So there are very, very many ways that guest worker program is positive. The other aspect, our short-term issue on stabilization of the existing workforce, the bill falls short. And we have been in ongoing discussions with the chairman and the staff. It's not, frankly, where we would like it to be at the moment, but we certainly want want to make sure that if the House passes any kind of legislation, they have something on agriculture. With growing concerns about immigration and its connection to the House Farm Bill's passage, Schlegel says the House will take action soon. He says Farm Bureau's main concern is that ag labor be included in an immigration reform package. We expect something will happen in the month of June. It may be in the third week of June, but we don't yet know what 
a package is going to look like, and we are trying feverishly to make sure that if there is some new vehicle that is going to get voted on the pass, that it addresses at least some aspects of agricultural labor. Chad Smith, Washington. What's happening at Lake Oroville? Well, spillway construction continues, according to the Department of Water Resources. The work is necessitated from the February 2017 spillway failures at Oroville Dam during an atmospheric river event. Controlled blasting demolition of the original 730 feet of the upper chute is completed. Crews are preparing the foundation for placement of structural concrete slabs and walls. Work continues on the energy dissipators or the dentates at the bottom of the main spillway. Department of Water Resources is again using November 1st as a milestone to complete major construction work and placement of all concrete on the main spillway. Additional work, including dry finishing and curing of concrete, joint sealing, connecting drainage systems, backfilling sidewalls, and site cleanup on the main spillway will continue after November 1st. What's happening on the emergency spillway? Well, construction of the northern half of the roller compacted concrete splash pad is 80% complete. Crews are 40% complete with foundation prep at the southern half of the splash pad. Work at the emergency spillway site is not dependent on the November 1st milestone, and that work will continue through 2018. Compared to farmers in northeastern California, Central Valley farmers have a better chance of getting water this year. Agriculture is a $557 million industry in the Klamath Basin, but without steady, reliable access to water, irrigators say it's impossible to run their farms and ranches. The Capitol Press reports farmers and ranchers up there still don't have a water allocation, and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which manages the project, is pleading for patience as regulators juggle limited supplies of surface water to protect endangered fish. The Klamath tribes filed a lawsuit May 24th against the Bureau, seeking an injunction forcing the agency to provide more water in Upper Klamath Lake in order to ensure the survival of two species of fish, the shortnose and the Lost River suckers. The year is pretty much halfway over, but if you're a tractor buff, there's still time to get to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. What's new for this year is that we've added two new elements. One is an exhibition that looks at precision farming, and the other is an icon entry artifact, the Waterloo Boy tractor. That was Smithsonian curator Peter Liebhold, who says as far as his museum is concerned, 2018 is the year of the tractor. The Waterloo Boy chosen for the display debuted 100 years ago in 1918. The Waterloo Boy as an entry icon for the American Enterprise exhibition is really outstanding because, first of all, It's just, frankly, a beautiful object. It's a beautiful green, sort of odd-looking tractor, and who can't be drawn to something like that? I'm Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at tractors and how they helped transform American agriculture. Oh, and there'll be a special appearance from a celebrity known by his stage name, Tractor Boy. So you think you know tractors? Somebody wants you, Tractor Boy. Tractor Boy. I do a segment on our television show each week on somebody's favorite old farm tractor. That was Tractor Boy himself, better known as ag broadcaster Max Armstrong. Next on This Week in Agribusiness, it's Max's Tractor Shed, spotlighting another great American tractor.
Maybe it's one that their father had. Maybe it's one that they grew up driving. Perhaps they're a mechanic and they just wanted to restore something. The folks approach this from many different angles, but they appreciate what we call the old iron. He's referring to tractors that were used in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. They're so uncomplicated. You know, you don't have the computer chips. You don't have all of the technology. They're easy to work on, easy to fix, and sometimes fathers and sons and fathers and daughters will work on these tractors and restore them. The Waterloo Boy tractor itself has been incredibly well received. Of course, what's really exciting about it is it doesn't quite look like a tractor that you would see today. Smithsonian curator Peter Leopold points out that the differences provide opportunities for discussion. So the Waterloo Boy has all steel wheels with big lugs on it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? There's no cab for it that the farmer just sits out in the open, that it's very lightweight. So there are lots of different aspects to it that really become sort of interesting thinking opportunities and great conversational points. He adds that the goal of the exhibit is to entertain and inform. We really want our visitors to be excited about being at the museum and to have epiphanies, to have a greater understanding and to learn something. One lesson is how important agriculture is to American history. In the time of Jefferson, over 80% of Americans were involved in agriculture today. That's plus 2%. Another important aspect of the tractor is how agriculture continues to change and evolve. It's just this wonderful prism to see how technological change, how things like tractors are a prism to understand other kinds of innovation. If you can understand how tractors might be changing the world, then you can start to think about how that might be true for other things like, say, self-driving cars. Susan Fugate at USDA's National Agricultural Library says reaction to a recent exhibit showed her that many people do love tractors. We were inspired to build that exhibit for Take Your Daughters and Sons to Work Day, and it was a big hit. Not only at home, but overseas as well. And we did an exhibition with the Ukrainian embassy, and we featured a lot of photographs of early tractors. My name is Yasser Aziz. I work for Iraqi Army. He was at the Smithsonian where he asked for help to take his picture in front of the Waterloo boy. Not just for the picture, to take a look for the history for American. Use him in the, the farms. But no, this is very old. We have a new style. Tractors that are old? That's exactly what broadcaster Max Armstrong prefers. It reminds me of the advances of productivity. That's why I like to be around the old tractors. It reminds me of how far we've come. In Waterloo, Iowa, John Deere is holding a 100th anniversary celebration at its tractor museum on Father's Day weekend, June 15th and 16th. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho with help from Tractor Boy at the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. There's a tree fruit orchard tour coming up Tuesday, June 26th in Walnut Grove and in Linden. The tour will explore the use of harvest aids and mechanization for improving efficiency and reducing labor costs in tree fruit production. They'll travel to several orchards to see and discuss trellis systems and platforms for harvesting and managing pear trees, cherries, and apple orchards. Researchers from Washington State University will share results of their work with harvest assist machines and their effects on productivity, efficiency, and bruising. Researchers and growers will discuss lessons learned from trellis designs as well as spacing that facilitates mechanization and maximizes efficiency. Again, the tour is on June the 26th. Deadline to register is June 21st. Chuck Engels, Farm Advisor for Cooperative Extension in Sacramento County, has more details. You can call him at 916-875-6913 for more details. 
throughout history, love has inspired great music. Even the love of food has been a musical inspiration for some, but apparently not for this food. Asparagus, asparagus, for corners on your table. Asparagus, asparagus, will make you feel more able. I love to eat asparagus, it tastes so good to me. Maybe it's the name, asparagus, it sounds like a fungus. I don't know what to tell you, I didn't personally name it. <laughs> yeah, but you're out here at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in Washington in the rain, by the way, trying to convince people who may not like asparagus that it can be quite tasty, quite good. In fact, she's Leslie Good, and she's here with me in the Veducation Tent at the market. So, Leslie, you say asparagus is good, but I've heard some folks say when asked if they like asparagus. No, I don't. Yucky. Yucky. So, Leslie, uh, what do you say to people who come up here and say that? I say you should try it roasted with olive oil and some seasonings, salt, pepper, Parmesan cheese, which is how we're serving it today. You think I'd like it? I think you would. In fact, you, uh, you've got a, a confederate here doing just that, putting some asparagus into a little roasting oven here. I want to get it cooking so people can have some uh, tasty treats to try while we're talking to them. <laughs> That's Hallie Heinzen, and uh, she has got some asparagus here. She's putting some seasoning up. Whoa. Oh, the wind is blowing your seasoning all over. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off a second so you don't get pepper in your eyes. <laughs> Good idea. So you will be uh, handing out free samples of this uh, roasted asparagus dish, but it's raining pretty hard now. Not many folks out here. You may have a lot left over there. I'll eat all of this. You may have to. <laughs> I love asparagus. It's a really versatile food. It goes in a lot of different cuisines, and it's pretty hard to mess up. So it's a good beginner vegetable. But now let's go back in time. To ancient Rome, Roman soldiers used to carry asparagus as weapons. Uh, Leslie, you're shaking your head no on that. They did, they did, I know it. Uh, you've heard of uh, asparagus spears. Maybe that's what caused the fall of the Roman Empire, but who knows, the ancient Romans are not around anymore to prove my theory. They are not. No. But asparagus lives on. Yes, asparagus remains. Uh, yeah, but I don't know how with that name asparagus. Leslie, if you could change it, what, what would you call it? Green Spears. Green Spears. That's not bad. So are you and Holly going to uh, convince the naysayers here today? Of course we are. Yeah, we're going to rock asparagus. All right. In the rain. <laughs> rock it in the rain. For some great Green Spears, no, no, I mean asparagus recipes, go online to What's Cooking at USDA. Now, next time, we'll get Leslie to talk about the nutritional qualities of asparagus, how to buy it, store it, maybe even get a few more people here inspired. <laughs> by asparagus. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Farmers and ranchers throughout the United States depend on internet access for various tasks every day, including global positioning system guidance for farm equipment, plus vital data collection and transmissions. Data like soil conditions, dew point, temperature, wind speeds before sending it all to a cloud-based system. And then from there, they have to make real-time decisions regarding factors like seed population and fertilizer rates. The data needs to be collected and accessed quickly for successful production in a global agricultural economy. And California farmers... If you live in a rural area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. High-speed internet is still slow out in many areas of California. Something like 1.4 million Californians lack access to broadband internet, in fact, at any speed. So, what's being done about it? Well, there was a roundtable held recently at the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and it was all designed to 
put it out there on the table that what does rural California need? There's a lot of urgency to getting technology, high-tech ag to the farmers and, in fact, all of rural California. The co-founder and co-chair for the recent California Ag Tech Roundtable Strategic Initiative is Robert Gore, and he was part of a select group that addressed the California Department of Food and Agriculture about the needs of rural Californians, especially the need for high-speed Internet. And Robert Gore, it's a pleasure to talk uh, to you. Tell us about the uh, California Ag Tech Roundtable Strategic Initiative. The Ag Tech Roundtable is, is a unique uh, pro bono venue of key state regulators, senior uh, ag researchers, and, and farmers, and uh, grower organizations, and then also some ag tech uh, providers, innovators, people who uh, in- invented various applications. And your lead-in was absolutely correct. A friend of mine, David Bunn, the director of conservation in a C. Davis PhD, um, said, the information highway in rural California is a rutted dirt road. Uh, he had just returned from Africa, and he compared uh, rural California to a third-world country. Um, in fact, in some cases, it's actually worse. We tend to get caught up in, in high-tech and the ag-tech because we're the home of the Silicon Valley, but we're also home of the San Joaquin Valley, and although they're roughly adjacent, um, there's no connecting the two. Most of the San Joaquin Valley, which includes four of the the nation's largest ag counties, there is no connectivity. So when we get all caught up in drones and and, uh, automated tractors, um, irrigation programs that are so precise they can pick out an individual plant to deliver water and fertigation and pesticides if necessary, Um, the fact is that in, in rural California, that connectivity doesn't exist at all. And there is, as you pointed out again correctly, summer urgency. Most growers, um, we've conducted some research with Western growers and the West Hills Community College in Coalinga, Lamore, and Firebaugh. Most growers want this connectivity within the next two years. They need to comply with state regulations on water management. Uh, they need to report uh, other data. They also, if they're out in the middle of the field and find a bug that could be an invasive species, They'd like to be able to send a photograph before the bug gets away, and they can't do that. So literally, there is no connectivity and there is no ag tech. And I'll add one more thing. No ag tech means no careers for youths in rural California who otherwise leave the farm or can't get jobs because there's no way for them to apply what it is they're learning. That's a very good point that farmers across the country are making if you want us to stay on the farm, you've got to help our families to keep us in a rural setting. Yes, and that's the point we made with the Board of Food and Ag and the California Department of Food and Agriculture. We have partial solutions, that is funding and other technological expertise posed by the Public Utilities Commission, by tech providers, but no one is coordinating all of it. What we asked the board and the, the food and ag leadership is to to do is to step up right now and coordinate all of the people we've gathered who each have a part of the solution, bring them all together and get this thing solved. And as a result of the round table meeting with the board Tuesday, the secretary emailed me, Karen Ross, and and there'll be a meeting on Monday um, 
with one of her subordinates, and hopefully we'll get this on the way to being resolved. And then we have a follow-up meeting Friday scheduled at Harris Ranch, um, thanks to John Harris for sponsoring it. So we're, we're getting moving on a San Joaquin Valley pilot. Probably the first big need, I would think, is some sort of infrastructure. There have been auctions in the past. I believe there's another auction uh, coming up in July uh, that uh, local broad uh, internet service providers can bid on for some money to help basically uh, get the internet to rural areas. But I remember from the first auction, there were a lot of big promises, and those big promises turned out to be much smaller how do, you, how do you guarantee that it really is going to be high-speed Internet? That's absolutely essential. People tend to us, underestimate the needs of farmers. They don't r- realize how much technology is involved and how essential the need for speed is. What we're working on is with the Public Utilities Commission, Commissioner Martha Guzman Aceves, and several San Joaquin Valley Growers, Don Cameron, the president of the Board of Food and Ag, and others to coordinate a pilot in the Five Points area with the telecom to make sure we get this all right. We had a demonstration at UC Ag and Natural Resources, the Davis facility, about a month ago. There was a company, a Danish company of all things called Blue Sky, um, that had just brought connectivity to a village in Africa and you're right again, there's been advancement in connectivity as well. They have portable towers uh, that are kind of like mini towers, and you can tilt them up from the bed of a pickup, and they're less than $5,000. And the cost per household to connect them is also, is less than $5. So we're, we're busy evaluating how to bring this to rural California at a reasonable cost. And it's not just for ag. It also delivers remote health care. Uh, distance learning for, again, career advancement, and then also public safety. If you talk to any farmer who's got a high-priced piece of equipment out in the middle of a field, they have no way of knowing if it starts to move in the middle of the night. And that's another service of high-speed connectivity. They can wire all their equipment. What role do cell phone companies such as Verizon and AT&T play in this? One of my friends once uh, described one of his friends is having a mouthful of howdy and a handful of gimme. And um, telecoms have pretty much played that role so far. They, to be candid, haven't been helpful. Um, they're willing to attend meetings and talk about technical parameters. But when it comes down to it, they don't see the population density. And that's why we're trying to take one additional step, and that is defining broadband rural connectivity as economic development. That is job creation, because in rural America anywhere, and California in particular, there never will be the population density. But in any orchard, in any field, there's there's a, a proliferation of sensors that are all wired. We're all trying to connect. And so what we want to do is make sure there is funding available, not just based upon population density, but on plant density. Are there any satellite providers, satellite providers of Internet service involved in this? No. It's either going to be microwave, and I'm no engineer, so I'm on shaky ground here literally, but it, it, it's either microwave or, or, or line of sight cell, depending on where you live. We, we are um, quite serious in putting together ag-based careers for disadvantaged communities. In the Central Valley, Northern California, there are uh, 
people, I, I was going to say kids, but it, that's not the case. There are people who are in their mid-20s, uh, the sons and daughters of farm workers who recognize their next career moves based upon technology. And in order for that to happen, there has to be connectivity. So an adjunct delivering on-farm connectivity is delivering careers um, and the next step up for farm workers. It's going to be a long haul to get the infrastructure in and get the financing for it as well. There's over 1.4 million Californians without access to broadband internet at any speed. How are you going to keep them down on the farm if they don't have high-speed internet? That's the job that Robert Gore is attempting to tackle through the California Ag Tech Roundtable Strategic Initiative. Robert Gore, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thanks again, Fred. On June 6th, the Department of Food and Agriculture expanded the quarantine boundary for HLB, Wong Long Bing disease, in Orange, Los Angeles, and San Bernardino counties. HLB is a deadly citrus disease. Quarantine areas put strict prohibitions on the movement of citrus and citrus trees from the area. Even though HLB remains a serious threat to citrus trees throughout California, the number of Asian citrus psyllids, they're the insect that vectors the disease, is declining in the San Joaquin Valley. Authorities say they've trapped fewer of the insects this year in the state's main citrus growing area. The psyllid carries that fatal plant disease that so far has been kept out of the state's commercial groves. But in Southern California, the number of residential citrus trees infected with HLB continues to rise. In conjunction with the rise of HLB in Southern California in backyard citrus trees, the group CaliforniaCitrusThreat.org released this public service announcement this past week. There's a storm brewing in California, a deadly plant disease that can change our landscape forever. Spread by the Asian citrus psyllid Huang Long Bing, or HLB, is a death sentence for citrus. The disease is already in our state. Now's the time to inspect your citrus trees and report suspicious symptoms. If HLB is not stopped, all citrus in California is at risk of disappearing. We must act now. Learn how to protect your citrus trees at CaliforniaCitrusThreat.org. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.